Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Argus Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the world's first named author and why she has been forgotten for too long. Telling the story of Ireland's people and places over the past 150 years through photography. And to end the show, the history of hairdressing and how it goes back at least 5,000 years. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the life, legend and legacy of St. Bridget and how she became such an iconic figure in Irish history. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the world's first named author and why she has been forgotten for far too long. Who was the world's first named author and where did they come from? Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Sydney Babcock, the exhibition creator of a wonderful new exhibition being hosted at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York City called She Who Wrote, which is looking at the women of Mesopotamia from the years 3400 to 2000 BC. And it includes and is centred around the first named author in all of world literature. Sydney, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to share this material with you and your audience. So I think if we were to have a quiz in in Ireland and ask people to name (laughs) the world's uh, first named author, uh, I don't think they would guess that she came from Mesopotamia and they probably wouldn't guess that it was a woman. So tell us, who was she and why is she so significant? Well, you're probably right about that. I think most people would probably come up with the name of Homer, if you're lucky. Well, who was she and why is she so significant? Well, she is the daughter of an Akkadian king named Sargon. And Sargon has the great distinction of creating what is known as the world's first empire and how he does that. He joins, he combines the southern Sumerian temple states that are already quite ancient in the southern part of Mesopotamia, which is present-day Iraq with the northern cities of the Akkadians, which he was already in control of. He's an Akkadian king, not a Sumerian. And he unifies them in the world's first empire. And he does it through force, and then he creates an extraordinary administrative system to keep the whole thing working as one entity. Now, his daughter, whom we know as Anheduanna, he appoints her to be the high priestess of the cult god of the moon at the, as I said, already ancient city of Ur in in the Sumerian city-states of southern Mesopotamia. And of course, Ur is one of the most famous and ancient cities in the world. And this position of high priestess of the moon god at Ur already had tremendous, important cultic and political influence. Now, we only know her by the name of Enheduanna, which is not her birth Akkadian name. The name is the Sumerian name, which she takes when she becomes the high priestess at Ur. And the reason she takes the Sumerian name I think, is to show the Sumerians who are now under the control of the Akkadians that there is no break 
between the Sumerian past and the Akkadian present. She is a unifier. That's her great strength. She's a unifier trying to help her father's political ambitions, but also to try and create some kind of harmony within the new current structure. She's been described, I think you've called her the first known author in history. And yes. it's, it's also remarkable that she includes autobiographical details in several of her poems. Yes. Well, she's the first known author in history because one of the texts that she writes is called the Temple Hymns. And the Temple Hymns describe all the different cults, both of the Sumerians and the Mesopotamians and, and, the, and the Akkadians. And she creates one religious text that both the Sumerians and the Akkadians can all work from. And this is the document that she signs. And she says, O king, O my lord, I have created here something no one has done before, I and Heduana. So this is where she claims authorship, and, it's the, and she knows what she's doing. And that's remarkable. But in her other, one of her other hymns, which I find the most beautiful and the most profound, is called, known as the Exaltation of Inanna. And this is where, this is the great moment in literature, I think, early literature is that the first time a writer steps forward, uses the first person singular and identifies herself by name and writes with autobiographical details and invents really the form of autobiography. This hadn't happened before. And that is extraordinary. And she writes with great profundity and personal. She describes really traumatic events in her life. This exaltation of Inanna is really quite powerful. And uh, she writes that she is, and we that she is the high priestess of the moon god at Ur. Uh, she's an Akkadian, remember, and the Akkadians are in control of all these earlier Sumerian cities. And she writes that a usurper, a Sumerian usurper named Lugalan, comes into the temple complex and tries to overthrow the Akkadians, and he grabs her, uh, rips off her crown of office, the diadem that she wears, that she calls the Aga crown sends her out into the wilderness to die. At that point, she implores the moon god, whom she serves, to come to her aid. The moon god does not listen. She then implores to the queen of heaven, the female goddess Inanna. Inanna listens and restores her, and that's why we call it the exaltation of Inanna. I could share you some passages of this powerful text. Absolutely, Sydney, because we're getting an insight in here into sexual harassment, abuse, yeah. uh, corruption, uh, very much issues that are as, are as significant today as they were back then. And my point now, the, really the main point of all of this and why I think this is so important is that these issues, and I think you'll understand when I read these texts how powerful and personal it is, these issues have been with us from the very beginning from the world's first known author, who is this woman? And if we don't have that historical perspective, we're never going to address it. And we've really got to start addressing these things. And these countries such as Iran and Afghanistan, even in America here, women's rights are really in jeopardy. So this is a very powerful voice who's crying out to us from the past. So if I may share you a few passages that I find really very important. Uh, the first 60 lines of the text, she evokes the power and the presence of the Queen of Heaven, Inanna. And it begins with queen of all cosmic powers. That's the first line. And then at line 62, after she's sung this song invoking Inanna, she steps forward at line 62. And listen to the language. It's really quite beautiful. She writes, omniscient sage, lady of all lands, sustenance of multitudes. I have verily recited your sacred song, 
true goddess, fit for the divine essences. It is exalting to acclaim you, merciful one, brilliantly righteous woman. I have verily recited your glories to you. Verily, I've entered the holy place at your behest. I, the high priestess, I, and Heduana. And that's where she enters. That's where the first time a writer uses the first person singular, and we know her by name in a text. And then I'm just going to share with you two or maybe three short passages, if I may. It's really so profound. And the reason I'd like to do this is that this text is so unknown to so many people, and it's really quite profound and beautiful. So here is where she pleads to the moon god to save her. This is her first plea. And she wonders why all this is happening to her. And she writes, yes, I took up my place in the sanctuary dwelling. I was high priestess. Remember, she's been thrown out into the wilderness at this point. I was high priestess, I and Heduana, though I bore the offering basket, though I chanted the hymns, a death offering was ready. Was I no longer living? I went towards light, felt scorching to me. I went towards shade, it shrouded me in swirling dust. A slobbered hand was laid across my honeyed mouth. What was fairest in my nature was turned to dirt. O moon god, is this Lugalan my destiny? Tell heaven. Set me free of it. Just say it to heaven. Heaven will set me free. This is a cry of anguish that has been resonating for thousands of years to our present moment. Incredible. And Sydney, and, the, the museum, yes. it's, it's an exhibition that's open to the public until the 19th of February. But I know that's that correct, pe- yes. I, I know the people and you are on Madison Avenue. You're only about a six minute we walk are. from the Empire yes. State Building. So our yes. listeners, if they are in New York City, will be able to go and visit. But if, if not, they can take an audio tour of the exhibition online. Yes. And there's also a lecture I gave that's online. But really, the objects that I want people to see and speak for themselves. Uh, one of the main points of the exhibition was for me to show these sculptures and images of women for the first time. Uh, this, this is the first exhibition devoted to women in the history of my field, and that's really quite extraordinary. And we're trying to rethink a number of these objects and remove some of the gender bias that has accrued to them over the years. I mean, there's one beautiful sculpture of a high priest, which, was, which I believe is actually an image of Enheduanna herself, although it's slightly later in date, but it's probably a posthumous image of her. And it shows a priestess, look, which looks like her. You know, we, all, we actually have an image of her from her lifetime, which is in the exhibition. And she's seated with a cuneiform tablet on her lap, a text. And when this was published by about 110 years ago by the male scholar, he wrote, woman with tablet in her lap, meaning unclear. Well, because of that negative assessment of this beautiful sculpture. The sculpture was forgotten, and we are rehabilitating it in the exhibition as as, uh, visual evidence of women in literacy. I mean, it all goes hand in hand. And what's fascinating is the way she was discovered, she was then forgotten about, discovered again, rediscovered that the own history of of her over the past 100 years as well, in terms of public understanding or, or awareness of her, is also fascinating. Yes, and now she's coming into her own, not just for this exhibition, but it seems to be her moment. Uh, one of our big universities has now added this exaltation, which I gave you a quote from, uh, to their core curriculum, which is terrific. Uh, as I, She was known by a handful of Assyriologists, 
early in the in the in the twentieth century, and in nineteen twenty seven a an excavation, a joint excavation by the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and the British Museum had discovered a round disc about so a little over a foot in diameter that actually has an image of her from her lifetime actually overseeing a libation. She has erect posture, a full fleshy face, a strong aquiline nose, and she wears that circlet in her hair that identifies her as a priestess. And on the other side, is what's really quite wonderful, is an inscription which gives us the name, clearly the name, Enheduanna, and it identifies her, so text and image go hand in hand. And this very object, actually, was on view for about 500 years, and at one point was destroyed, or who knows how or why, and the inscription that survives is not complete. But about 200 years after it was made, it was considered so important that the inscription was copied down by scribes. And it's that entire inscription that survives to us today. And then, of course, with the the, the, uh, the falling out of use of cuneiform and these languages, by the time of Alexander, all of this gets forgotten until this rediscovery in the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. And the first really main edition of this exaltation, which is really, I think, the most profound of her works, was not until 1968. And that is remarkable. Uh, but now there are more editions coming out, and it's really coming onto its own. But the reason why these texts of her survive is a very important point to make, I think. And her, this text that I gave you the quote of, The Exaltation of Inanna, was considered so important in her lifetime that this text by this woman became part of the ten basic texts that were then taught in the scribal schools for the next over 500 years, this text by this woman. And because of that, we have today over 100 different copies of it have survived on cuneiform tablets, almost more than any other literary text from Mesopotamia. And that is amazing. It is indeed amazing. And Sydney, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk to us about the exhibition. It's running in the Morgan Library and Museum in New York City until the 19th of February. But definitely go to their website as well, www.themorgan.org, and you'll be able to take an audio tour of the whole thing. It's called She Who Wrote Enheduanna and the Women of Mesopotamia, 3400-2000 BC. Uh, the exhibition curator is Sydney Babcock. And Sydney, thanks so much for joining us. I've been delighted to share this with you, really. I'm thrilled to be able to do this with you. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A wonderful new photographic exhibition has just opened at the National Photographic Archive on Meeting House Square in Temple Bar in Dublin and it's running until 2025 and it has some remarkable photographs. And to talk about this exhibition, People and Places, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Smith, the Acting Head of Exhibitions, Learning and Programming at the National Library of Ireland. Sarah, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's a wonderful exhibition, but maybe before we begin, let's talk about the National Photographic Archive. What is this archive? So the National Photographic Archive in Temple Bar houses the photographic collections of the National Library of Ireland. We're located over in Kildare Street in our main campus, and this is our outlier in Temple Bar, which provides special archive conditions for storing the collections and also a photographic gallery where we run a regular um, series of exhibitions. Now, I knew you had some photographs in the National Library. I didn't know that you had over five million. 
we do from the earliest days of photography right up to acquisitions that my colleagues are working on now for the Yes Equality campaign. So we're moving into a whole new dimension from the handling of glass plates and salt prints from the very early days of photography right up to digital ingest. So tell us about this exhibition then, People and Places. What exactly is is covered here? What we wanted to do with this exhibition was to try and show the breadth of the collection that we have which, as you can imagine, is very difficult to pick 50 photographs out of 5 million um, and try to capture the nature of the collection. So we looked at a lot of the photographers that people have been interested in over the years and a lot of the themes that people have come to research in the library. So that would be everything from transport, our political history. People will have seen an awful lot of photographs and decade of commemorations that have come from the, the National Library. But it's also just the, the very ordinary, everyday nature that's captured in the collections. So people's faces from 150 years ago, the costumes, what our street furniture look like, what our streets look like. There's such a wealth of information in the photographs and it's also very interesting. You look at one photograph and once you read the caption beside it, it tells you a completely different story from what you might have expected at looking at that person. And there are some wonderful ones that I was looking at there. For example, there's one of a, of a fiddler and this is from the late 19th century. Yes, so this is part of the Lawrence Collection. I suppose the Lawrence Collection is probably one of our best known collections, but it's synonymous with streetscapes and rural views. There is this small section within the collection called the Irish Life series and it's really where they went around and captured aspects of Irish life that would have been interest to the tourist market. A lot of the Lawrence collection was very specifically aimed at that. But this is a wonderful black and white image of a fiddler and I think it just really captures the essence of the person. It's a very striking image. And there's some other wonderful ones that I liked. A picture of, of children at the Ballymun Flats in 1969 and you have all of their names. And then there's one of, of uh, someone selling refreshments at the Gap of Dunlow in Killarney and uh, part of a, a series of portraits of local women. And so it's getting the ordinary, it's getting the everyday and it's capturing uh, what was going on for people. Exactly. And I think some of our better known and more exposed photographs would be around the big events of the the day and the history making. But those girls who were photographed in Ballymun in 1969 would never have been expecting to appear on the wall of a natural cultural institution um, at this stage. So that's just a picture of children going around their everyday life. And there's a lot of photographs of children in the collections and children's lives have changed so significantly over that time. And, and even, I think, for you know, Ballymun, the flats to feature in the collection is, you know, is significant. And that's what we're working towards with our collection policy is that we become ever more inclusive and not just capturing the big moments, but capturing the, the lives that people in Ireland experience on a daily basis. I was surprised by the quality of the pictures that uh, they were a lot better than I expected, given that in some cases it's early cameras and uh, none of the digital technology that we have now. So what types of cameras were being used? So they would have been varying significantly and the technology was very different, was very cumbersome and very difficult to set up. We have an example from Boyle and County Roscommon from the Tennyson family. That was an example of the first positive negative process in photography. When photography began, you only got one image that was created in your camera. And this is the first type of print that was created from a negative in the contact process. We also have stereo pairs and that would have been 
created with a camera with two lenses. And then in order to view it in its full glory, you would have viewed it through a stereo pair or stereoscope and that would have presented the image to you in 3D. That was very popular in Victorian times for showing your tourist photographs and Lawrence would have created a lot of those. And then we're moving right up through the Kodak box cameras into the 20th century. And, you know, our collection really covers everything up until the the digital stage. It is kind of mad to think that in the modern digital age, almost everything is photographed. Whereas in the old days, because film was so expensive, you might only get, you know, a handful of photos taken of big family events or things that were happening and not everything would have survived. And if there was a mistake or a blurriness, uh, it is really incredible the, the difference and the transformation that has taken place. Absolutely. If you look at an event that's happening now, you're going to have photographs from maybe three, four, five, twenty different angles of different people who have cameras or camera phones taking images. Back then, cameras would have been very unusual. And you can see that in the streetscapes, people are stopping and looking. They're, they're looking directly at the photographer because they're like, oh, what's that? What's going on? Or, you know, wanting their photographs to be taken. A lot of people would have had to pay to go to a studio. Um, and pay to have their photographs taken because you just didn't have them at home. So what are your favourites from the collection? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I think probably the Tynan image from Glenties and Donegal of the boy in the go-kart. Um, it's just a very off-the-cuff image that really captures the joy of childhood, I think. And it's not just the people, you know, it's people and places. So we're getting a sense of these different localities as well, and it's all across the country. Yes, yeah, so we've gone on a very national spread, um, North and South, it's an all-island um, exhibition. So we have Derry, um, John Hume and Derry. We have locations such as the Giants Causeway, because we were looking at some of the tourist destinations as well. Many counties across the country are featured there. We have trains in uh, Clonus and County Monaghan. We have Kerry. We have Roscommon. Longford, there's a great photograph of Longford actually uh, taken during the um, Spanish flu pandemic with a, a Don't Worry sign painted on the gable end and you know that's amazing to be looking at that back now through the prism of COVID it means a lot more to us now than it would have say five years ago which I think is um, shows how history is always helping us reinterpret how we view photographs. Yeah, I kind of wish I'd taken more photographs during that time of the lockdowns when yeah. you'd be in a park and it'd be absolutely deserted and the whole world seemed to have shut down completely and uh, definitely would have been worth capturing. The National Library is digitising. It hasn't digitised all the five million, but it has it has digitised <laughs> uh, an awful lot, I think about 60,000. Yes, and uh, we have an ongoing project. Uh, we have a digital studio on site and, and a team working there and everything has to be catalogued first before it's digitised and then on the online catalogue. So everything that's in the exhibition can be viewed on the online catalogue. And you can obviously then see other photographs in those collections and get a broader sense of, of, of what we have. We also have um, our some of our past exhibitions from the National Photographic Archive online on the website. And something to look out for is people and places appearing there later on in the year. We have a new website and uh, we will be updating the online exhibitions there as well. Now, this wonderful exhibition is running until 2025, as I said, but a big thing in the arts world now is sustainability. And is there a place still for exhibitions in our new environmentally conscious age? I absolutely think so. And we've taken that um, into account with this, working with um, the designer Emma Conway in the library. We we removed vinyl from this exhibition in terms of putting vinyl on the wall and that would have been... 
a very much a go-to thing that was used in exhibitions. So uh, Emma worked with a local sign painter, Louise, to, to actually paint the quotes directly onto the wall, to paint the titles onto the wall. What we plan to do with the exhibition is, because it's running for so long, and because we have really an embarrassment of riches in terms of the photographic collection, that we will change in and out some photographs and maybe focus on different themes at different stages um, throughout the run of the exhibition. And so if people want to look at some of the ones online, go to the the National Library website, nli.ie. That's right. Very good. And well, one of my favourites is of the new lighthouse being constructed at Fastnet Rock in County Cork, and that's around the turn of the, the 20th century. So you get an insight into landmarks and places of interest being built and, and what it was like at the very start. Yeah, so... I think we're very well known for for streetscapes and landscapes and things like that, but that's from the Commissioners of Irish Lights collection and it's absolutely fascinating. That shows the lighthouse after it had been built and you can see the stump of the previous lighthouse behind it and if you look at the tiny footprint that these lighthouses were built on and that collection also contains really interesting photographs of them winching the blocks of limestone up from the ships onto the, it's a rock, it's not even an island. So it's absolutely fascinating. And the politics of the period intrudes as well. So during the Civil War, when the Free State Government was landing uh, uh, troops and and equipment and vehicles in in Munster, uh, there's lovely photographs from that as well. Yes, so we did decide that people had had seen an awful lot of our decade of commemoration photographs um, over the last couple of years. So we looked for a slightly different angle. For those, so I think that's maybe one that is a little bit of a lesser known episode in that period of history where they were landing the armoured cars in Munster, sailing around the Lady Wicklow and landing then in Fennet and then in Cork. So, and it's just, it's a very relaxed photo. The soldiers are sitting up on top of the the armed cars. So I think it captures a moment that says, you know, a lot about the individuals who were involved as well as the events. Given that you had over 100 years of photography to choose from, what did you decide would go in and and what didn't make the cut? Oh, a lot. Oh, the, the long list was very long. Um, it's, it's very challenging as when you work with the collections over time, you, you do have um, photographs that you like, but it was trying to trying to put something in that would appeal to everybody, that anybody could walk into this exhibition and look and find something that they could identify with that, that would appeal to them. And we've, you know, across the library, diversity and inclusion is really important to us and we're building that into everything that we do. So we did look at that in terms of making sure that there was representation of female photographers, that there's, you know, good representation of men, women, children and, and different groups in, in our society. And then alongside that, we know there are things that people love in our collections, like our trained photographs and things that show the, the changing fashion and the changing lifestyle and things change so dramatically over that period of time you know it, it, it was it was difficult <laughs> now the most important thing to say to our listeners is that admission is free for the exhibition is, so yes. uh, do people have to book in advance or can they just turn up you can just turn up admission is free we're based on meeting high square in temple bar you'll see nice uh, colorful vinyls in the window um, stating it's people and places and we're open seven days a week 
OK, well, it's people and places at the National Photographic Archive, Meeting House Square, Temple Bar in Dublin, running until 2025. And my thanks to Sarah Smith, the Acting Head of Exhibitions, Learning and Programming at the National Library of Ireland, for joining me tonight to tell us all about it. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A wonderful new exhibition is running in the Irish Architectural Archive on Marion Square in Dublin. Uh, until the 24th of this month and it's about the history of hairdressing. It's called The Coiffured. The visual artist behind uh, this wonderful exhibition is Amanda Jane Graham, a visual artist and indeed a former hairdresser. And Amanda, I'm delighted you're able to join me tonight on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's a brilliant exhibition. There's a wonderful collection of essays uh, based around the exhibition that I have here in front of me that you put together. Can you tell me, first of all, how you had the idea of of telling the story of the history of hairdressing? Well, it started with um, an open call for a Spark Residency and the Spark Residency was run by Leitrim Arts Office and it was, um, and they've been doing these for a very long time, You go where artists go into businesses. And I went into Habic Image Skillnet, which is the Hair and Beauty Industry Confederation. So as a, an artist hairdresser, I went in, to the to Habic, and I had just come from uh, an extensive body of research in, uh, in sociological research in Maynooth University. So I'd gone from one to the other. So my sociological skills were really, and my research skills were really quite heightened. So I kind of approached it as a sociologist, wondering where did the stigma that I endured and encountered on so many occasions as a hairdresser originate. I kind of thought it was a a kind of a a circular reasoning that there was no beginning and no end but I thought if I could maybe begin to understand it that maybe we could go do something about stopping it. And so that's where I began and I started to research. I went straight back into Minute's library and um, started to research and through the research I was over 20 years hairdressing and I didn't know the history of it and this amazing history unfolded and like I felt it was su- I had a superficial career. It was, um, you know, just something you you did until you got something else to do. You know, it was just it was the way this kind of societal um, attitude towards it that I'd internalised, and and it couldn't be further from the truth. This is ancient profession that can, can be dated back to being well established three thousand four hundred BCE. Which is extraordinary and the archaeological evidence that you discuss, the fact that when some of these tombs were excavated in the 20th century, they find all of these hairdressing pieces of equipment and baskets of hair accessories and some pieces of hair that shows, as you say, it goes back to the 3400 BC, back 5000 years. Yeah, and they were using, like it wasn't, obviously we've modernised, but it, it not not by much. The wig that was found was Merit. Her, um, she had baskets, like her private possessions, her personal possessions were buried with her. And in it was um, her hair extensions and her wig. And her wig is still intact. The archaeologist who discovered it in 1927 said that he could still smell the hair products, like the, the coconut oils and the hair products they used to preserve it. So these people were incredible, you know, that they, and we're still using their techniques and their methods. Obviously, we've modernised them, but I mean, hair extensions, wigs, the tools and the pins, they have become modernised. But basically, these skills that have been passed down for millennia. 
And back in those days, the hairdresser had a special status in Egyptian society and was hugely respected because this was seen as very significant and important work. Yeah, there were rituals of cleansing and the the hairdresser was seen as a priestess and held a really high status within society. It was really beatified status. And although those rituals still exist, um, in in some countries, the the hairdresser doesn't hold that beatified status, and I so I began to think. I'd found out this information, and I began to think, where did it all go wrong? Which pointed me towards the French Revolution, and at the time, um, with Marie Antoinette, she did have those toilettes where she people could come in and view her getting her hair done and getting getting ready, but she stopped that which didn't really go in her favour. Um, but it, she was would have been hugely influential for ladies' hairdressing. And and, and before that, uh, you show that uh, if men weren't really allowed or you know to work on women's hair, that it was a, a woman for a woman's yeah. ha- haircut and then a man for a man. But that all changed in this in this pre-revolutionary period. Yeah, there would have been barbershops, but there was no ladies' hair, hair salons. Um, hair, ladies' hair was done in private rooms and private chambers, and it would be done by ladies in waiting or chambermaids. So it was really quite segregated. So, but at the time, if you look and and. Art history is a brilliant way of following um, the history of the hairdressing profession because you look at men's hairdressing and their wigs were so flamboyant and ostentatious. So these really creative hairdressers felt really restricted by the Guild and wanted to break free and did and broke into, um, moved into ladies' hairdressing and moved moved away from the Guild and wanted... um, artistic recognition for their practice and and their role in portraiture and arguments began with the guild because they did the the hairdressers the ladies hairdressers were not paying their fees or their guild dues and they were trying to remove themselves further and there was a lot of bad feeling between both and the barber guild brought the hairdressers to court of which they got a a lawyer to defend them and his defence then became a manifesto seeking artistic recognition for their practice. And one of the lines in, in it was, if the hair of Berenice has been placed among the stars, who will deny that before attaining her glory, she first needed our aid? And this was um, Queen Berenice of Egypt, who, legend has it, she cut off her beautiful, long, flowing hair to sacrifice it for the return of her, left it in a temple for the return of her husband. And there is now... Um, a constellation called Berenice's hair. So this is what they were they were referring to. So when did the historical stigma begin then? Was it a reaction against Marie Antoinette and some of her flamboyant creations or did it come later? Marie Antoinette you know, was so influential and a real, an international fashion influencer. And like today, people copied Madame Campan, uh, Marie Antoinette's lady-in-waiting, is on record for saying how people copied and how they got into debt and how the hair accessories were actual rubies and diamonds and the feathers were ostrich plumes and heron feathers which were imported and cost so so much money. And at the same time as that, there was also two pounds of flour went into every hairstyle and crops failed. And the, the flower war happened in France at the time and bread prices were growing. There was also a 
a play. It was all intertwined and intermingled all at the same time. There was a kind of a satirical play about an effeminate hairdresser. And rather than reject it, male hairdressers embraced it because it meant that they they didn't have an interest in women. They weren't a threat to women and they could freely work and be creative in female chambers that it was frowned upon for men to enter. So they kind of had free reign to to work. But at the same time, they didn't really conform to that stereotype and that infeminate male hairdresser wasn't believed at the time. So that kind of went against them. Then um, the costs of the hair while crops were while crops were fading and the aspiring middle classes to keep up with the likes of Marie Antoinette. And then the working classes couldn't afford to feed their families and two pounds of flour was going into every hairstyle and they felt, felt that they could feed the family for a couple of days in a hairstyle. So hairdressers were comprehensively blamed for starving the people. It wasn't over-farming, you know, it wasn't greed or mass production, neglect of the soil. No, it was the hairdresser got got the absolute blame. So in England, they were afraid to, uh, they, they were afraid of this spilling over and affecting their monarchy and their class system. So Ireland's own Edmund Burke wrote about in his reflections on the revolution and stated that the occupation of hairdresser could not be of honour to any person. And this is stated then again in Westminster. And there was terms like as common as a barbershop chair. And it, it was a really, really derogatory. And um, Professor John Hurstford has said that hairdressers were in a position to, to be demonised. They shouldn't have been, but they, they were demonised. So this is where the stigma has occurred. And it's still there today because there's the artwork, audio installation story where stylists narrate their, their experiences of hairdressing, of what they love about their career and you know, um, how they feel they're perceived by society. And some of it's heartbreaking. So tell us about what people will see when they go to the exhibition, because there are some comic images as well, where you maybe turn some of these things on their head, including a, 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 a humorous picture of Edmund Burke, where you've put him in the curlers. Yeah, so I, I started to reevaluate historical portraiture from the perspective of a hairstylist. So what I did was I looked at all sorts, all historical art, but looking at the hair. So we've been looking at these hairstyles for years, for centuries. I started to analyse them as to how I would do them as a hairdresser. So I used kind of 20th century motifs of hairdressing equipment, say hood dryers, rollers, setting pins, hair nets and randy brushes. And I placed them into the frame of the historical artwork on uh, on the sitter. So I, I placed the hairdressing profession into historical art because they have their contribution has never to date has never been considered at all. Their contribution is everywhere. Like you know the, the Egyptians weren't born with ornate hair and elegant eyeliner. They're incredible hair and beauty professionals. In art history, the gods had their hair done. You know, they had their beards done, you know, so their input has never been considered. So it's really making a point. And there's um, sculptural works, of marble busts, they're 3D prints, but they making the point that of Greek and Roman beauty. But yet the hair and beauty profession has never been brought into that conversation. And the likes of, there's the likes of Drurer. And Drurer is great to look at because he has done so many self-portraits. There is a timeline of his hair and it doesn't add up. You know, so there's the one I've done one a self-portrait of him in 1500 with a fur robe and he has a head of rollers. 
it's very probable possible that he's had he's wearing an extension piece if if you analyze back through his portraiture and it's just to open up a conversation about hair like drawer was very self-conscious about his advancing baldness, you know, and but it makes Durer very relatable. It makes art very relatable and it makes it very interesting, you know. So it's just to open up that conversation and include the input, not just of hairdressers, but of jewellers, of tailors, of textile artists, of furniture makers. These Most of these portraits were staged. There's so much expertise within the frame and none of it's been considered. So it's kind of asking the art world to go back and look at their collections again, but really look this time. But really look this time. Well, I think that's a brilliant point to make. And the exhibition is running until the 24th of February in the Irish Architectural Archive in Merrion Square in Dublin. It's called The Coiffer. There's a wonderful exhibition book that goes with it, all put together by Amanda Jane Graham, visual artist and former hairdresser. And uh, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. We all have family photographs dating back many, many years, but we don't always know how to date them, how to uh, identify them and find out exactly when they were taken. Well, to help us in our searches and our studies, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Catherine Howells, who's a principal record specialist in the visual collections at the National Archives in the UK, who is an expert in this area and certainly is able to help us on how to date family photographs. Catherine, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. It's nice to be here. So where should we begin if we do have some old family photographs, but we don't know when they were taken, even maybe we don't even know what necessarily what decade they were from? Yes, so this can obviously be a really tricky moment when you have some, some what look like amazing family photographs, but you just can't work out you know, when they were taken and, and who, even who's in the photograph. And obviously that can, that can really hold you back in terms of your family history research. But there are, there are ways to uh, find this information out. It just can be quite a tricky problem. It can be, you know, you do need a bit of perseverance, but it can be really rewarding as well. It can be a fun process. But I'd say that probably the first piece of advice I'd give is actually to start with the kind of the most, maybe the most obvious uh, areas that you can look at. So things like, are there markings on the photograph? Is something written on the back? And it might not, you know, chances are it might not be a date. That would be lovely if it was always the case, but... Um, often not. But it can be a little clue. Sometimes, you know, if a relative has looked after this photograph for, for many years and they've made a note of a name or a location or something like that, that might just give you a bit of a clue to, to sort of work out the connection there. And then the, the other sort of thing I'd say to start with is do take the opportunity to talk to your your relatives. Um, you know, make sure you, you take that chance while you have it because it's so easy to kind of put these conversations off and then you lose the opportunity to actually ask um, living relatives about these photographs. And they may not, you know, they may not have been in the photograph or involved in taking the photograph, but they may have heard stories um, that they can pass on to you. um, And then you can use those to sort of help you in your journey to find out the actual date of the photograph. And what about things like the fashions of the time? Can you tell anything from how they're dressed, what their hair is like, and maybe any other clues like that in the background? Yes, absolutely. So that that's often like a, a good next step is to, if you've got people in your photograph, um, have a really careful look at what they're wearing, what their hair's like, um, the kind of fashions that they that they've chosen. So there are certain things. Look for the women in your in your photographs because the fashion, female fashions, kind of changed more rapidly. So it might help you to narrow down your date range. Things like the silhouettes 
Um, so certain shapes of the skirt and that kind of thing can really help to narrow down. So, you know, if we're talking very early and you can see things like very large skirts and crinolines, then that's going to tell you that it's sort of is quite an early photograph, 1850s, 1860s, something like that. If it's sort of uh, more of a bustle at the back of the skirt, then you know it's a little bit later than that. Certain things with the sleeves can help you as well. So like sort of big, large sleeves with puffed shoulders might tell you that it's 1890s. So sometimes they can be quite specific in hairstyles as well. So have a look at the women in your photograph, how how strict and sort of austere is their, their hairstyle or is it softer, which might tell you that it's a bit later, that it's sort of in the 19, early 1900s. But the thing to bear in mind with all of this is that People, you know, as today, people didn't always keep up to date with the latest fashions. And, you know, depending on their situation, people would use secondhand clothes a lot as well. So there will, you know, fashion, you might know that a certain fashion came in in a certain year, but it might carry on being worn for, for many years after that. So although it can be really handy fashion, it can really help you out. Be cautious with that and, and bear in mind that, that people wouldn't always be completely up to date with the fashion of the time. But it can certainly it would certainly help you narrow down to, you know, hopefully a decade or a couple of decades, basically. Often um, it may not be able to pinpoint very specifically. So there are certain things like if, if your photograph is support, if the support is metal, if it's on metal or glass, then that might tell you that it's an earlier photograph. Like if, if it's a glass, it could be a daguerreotype or something like that, tin types on metal. There are various early um, types of photographs that you can, that an expert could probably fairly easily identify. But um, paper photographs were used right from the beginning pretty much until today, obviously. So if, if your photograph's on paper, um, it's, it can be quite tricky uh, to narrow down very specifically. But, but an expert could certainly give, give an indication. There are, you know, again, things like the tone, the color of the image. So if it's um, a sort of warm, more sepia kind of tone um, in your photograph, uh, that's, that's going to be probably pre-1910s. So 1860s, 1910s, if it's a sort of more neutral black and white image that we might be familiar with today, um, that's going to be a late, that's probably late 1890s onwards. But, you know, saying all this, there, as there is a lot of overlap. So it's not necessarily, um, it's not it's necessarily the, the simplest way to narrow down to a specific kind of year or even decade. But, but yeah, if you've got a photograph that, you, that's really, that you're really struggling with in terms of narrowing down, like if it doesn't have people in it, for example, or it's of a location that hasn't changed very much, um, then definitely having a look at the, 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 the tone um, and the support of the photograph can really, really help you there. It, even, you know, if you have, if, if say your photograph is taken in a certain town or village and you know, you know, you have relatives or even just people you know who are from that area who will know things about the history of that area or the history of your family, um, they they may just come out with things that can really help you out. They may be able to say, oh, well, I know that that shop in the background there was, you know, that was closed down in this year or, you know, that's, oh, that's definitely, oh, we, we, we referred to that woman as auntie so-and-so and you might be able to match that up with some other information you have um, and you can sort of combine whatever information you get from your family or from friends or acquaintances in the area you can put that together with with other clues and hopefully get to a get to a date or a decade at least 
And you and your colleague have written a, a brilliant blog on this for the National Archives, the British National Archives blog on the website. And at the bottom, you do have a, a list of resources and uh, various different online uh, databases that people can go to, to to look up some of these things in terms of uh, checking out photographic processes or historical fashions or so on, even war records, if there are any medals on display or something. And yeah. they also provide good clues and uh, ways of investigating things further? Yes. So, yeah, there's plenty of resources available to help with this. And yeah, that's for quite specialised areas, you know, so, so military medals, for example, it's always good to try and get yourself a, you know, a guide online, for that sort of thing, to try and match up um, what's in your photograph with, you know, some information that other people have researched and worked this out. And yeah, I mean, in general, you know, the, the internet can be great for this in terms of looking for other photographs that, that have the same characteristics as yours you know, in terms of fashion or, or anything like that, uniforms, that kind of thing. And if you can um, match up your photograph with others online, then that can really help because if somebody's done a bit of research on, on another photograph and you can say, well, I can see that, you know, this, this person is dressed very much the same or is wearing a similar uniform, um, then that can, that can give you a real head start. I see you also work on digital methods for archival research. And I was wondering, are there any kind of digital resort that people could scan their photographs in and and have some AI or online system analyse it for, for you? Um, I am not uh, aware that, that this kind of facility exists uh, yet, but I'm sure people are working on it. I mean, there have certainly been lots of um, yeah projects in terms of working out how to um, identify things in images using AI um, so I know, you know, there's been work on kind of being able to categorize more like design records and illustration records by what they contain based on AI. Um, for photographs, I think, I'm sure, I'm sure it will be an area that will be explored and that would be amazing if we could get to the point where, where, where these things could be kind of dated. Um, but it's always, you know, it's often quite difficult with a digital image, uh, a digital, a digitized photograph because, you know, some of those elements that you have in a physical photograph can be lost when it goes digital. And that is that is definitely a problem. I mean, obviously, digitizing one's photographs is a great idea for, for looking after them for the future. Um, but having the physical photograph can really help you when you're working on trying to date it, for example, because you will have, yeah, the writing on the back, you know, anything that's sort of around the photograph, perhaps even the box that the photograph was kept in, this kind of thing. Um, and anything to do with the as we were saying about the physical um, characteristics of the photograph, um, the process, that kind of thing. You kind of need the physical photograph to get to that. So, so while, yeah, hopefully the you know, d- digital methods will be able to um, allow us to, um, to kind of use AI to find out more about photographs once they're digitized, I would stress that it is so important to hang on to those physical copies and do all you can with those as well. So essentially, it's about being a detective and trying to put together as many pieces of evidence and as many clues as you can to to come to an overall kind of assessment of when it might have been taken. Yes, definitely. And it, and I think if you approach it like that, it can be really a really fun process because it's, you know, it's, it is quite common to not be able to date your photograph very specifically. It's, it's not easy to do. Um, so I guess setting expectations at the beginning is a good idea, but it can be really fun to um, to really kind of explore all those different clues, particularly if you've got a photograph with, with potentially lots of clues, you know, it's of a, of a specific place and you can, you know, you can go, yeah, go detective online and find out where that place is and how it used to look and connect up the fashions and everything. There's so many things, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down 
um, that's really, really great fun. So even if you don't get to like a specific date, uh, you can hopefully move slightly further along and enjoy it in the process. Okay, well, my thanks to Dr. Catherine Howells, Principal Record Specialist in the Visual Collections at the National Archives in the UK for joining me tonight to talk about how to date your family photographs. And if you do want to go to their uh, wonderful blog on their nationalarchives.gov.uk website, uh, she's co-written a blog there on uh, all the information you need starting off. And there's some great resources listed at the end of that blog as well. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks very much. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, Shanna Murphy on research and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.